Good evening. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Travis Hill. I'm the small groups pastor here on staff, and, and this is my last introduction of the summer. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that small group signups are coming up in August, y'all. And you need to pay attention because it's going to be great. So look out for that. Be here, August, small group signups. I also have the pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight. And so what, what I want you to do is picture with me that, that our speaker tonight has invited you to do his favorite hobby with him. And so he, he's invited you into this. And so what you guys might be doing is you might be going for, say, like a six to eight mile jog on a weekday night, just like your, your classic jog that all of you do as well, and I do as well also. And, and so you're going on this jog. Actually, I take that back. Maybe it's something that he also does as a hobby. Maybe it's a weekend, uh, just for the fun of it, uh, pacing a marathon in town, just, you know, casual. So what you're doing is you're, you're, you're pacing a marathon with our speaker tonight, because this is what he does for fun, y'all. I don't really understand it, uh, but I do this too. Uh, you're pacing a marathon for fun, and, and what our speaker tonight is wearing is, I'm told, uh, about three-inch running shorts that he has way too many pairs of. So you're casually, you're casually running with him, and on, on one side of the shorts, you might see maybe a New Balance logo, and on the other side of the shorts, you might see a Lululemon logo, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. They don't both make one pair of shorts. That's because our speaker has been sponsored by Lululemon and New Balance for his running, y'all. That, that's so impressive. Like, nobody paces marathons for fun of it to start, but this dude's also sponsored by these two. And I don't know if he still is or not. I'll let him answer that question. But at some point in his life, he's been sponsored by Lululemon and New Balance. If you want some free gear, you can probably come up, congratulate him on a sermon, then ask. Then ask. And as you're running, he might, he might lean over and, and decide to say something to you. Maybe after mile like 24 when he's just kind of getting into it and you're still huffing and puffing. And, and what he would say, I'm told, is, is all joking aside, this is like his phrase that he says, whether in a really funny moment or just in a really serious moment, he still might say all joking aside. And he would say it maybe, just maybe, in the language of Bahasa. Now, if you didn't know what that was, I didn't either, but apparently it's the native language of Indonesia, which he might be fluent in. I, like, I'm told this. I don't know if it's true or not. He might be fluent in Bahasa, the native language of Indonesia. And so he leans over and says something to you, and then you might lean over, and you might decide you're going to say something back. Uh, you might be saying, like, what in the world did you just say? Uh, but you might lean over and say something, and, and our speaker tonight might not hear you because I, I'm told that one of his ears, and I haven't confirmed this, is actually smaller than his other ear. And you'll have to confirm it. I actually didn't notice, but I, I've been told that. And so uh, that might be your experience with our speaker tonight. And all joking aside... Our speaker tonight, he, he's an attorney, he's a lawyer, uh, that's what he does for a day job, but he's been practicing really hard to get up here tonight. He's been someone who's been serving at GBC uh, for a really long time, and, and we've really enjoyed having him here, and, and he's so worthy to get up here and preach God's word to y'all, and so I hope y'all will welcome our speaker tonight, Josh Christopher. Uh, the fun part about all of that is probably 10% true. Uh, no one, like, just like people hate people who talk about CrossFit all the time, you probably also hate people who talk about running all the time. So I try not to be that guy. The Lulu and New Balance is a story for another time that's not here. Uh, Bahasa, this is me trying to clear my name before I start preaching God's word. Uh, Bahasa used to know a lot of it, don't know any of it. And I think that's, I think that's the clarity that we need for tonight. So, Travis, thank you uh, for that great introduction. If you have a Bible, we're in Exodus 19. I kind of feel like a little kid with my name tag, um, so 
that's also a good start for our chapter. But Exodus 19, if I haven't met you, my name's Josh Christopher. We tonight are going to open with a pretty big question. So our question for tonight is, who is God? Which, right, you can say, hey, that's kind of, a, kind of a loaded question, because if you've gone to church, maybe you have some answers to that. If you're here for the food or the fellowship or trying to scout out some dating prospects, maybe you're not so familiar with that. Or maybe your coworker dragged you, right, or your brother or your neighbor, and you're just here because it's a Thursday night. It's a big question. There's a lot of answers that maybe come to mind or maybe don't come to mind. And my goal for us as we read this text tonight is to have a very clear answer by the end of it of who God is, at least from two important characteristics. So the first is going to be God's faithfulness, and the second is God's holiness. And we'll close tonight by talking about what is our response to that tonight, our response to God's faithfulness and our response to God's holiness. And so if you will bow your heads with me, I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, we pray that as we read your word, that we would, we would see you more clearly. Lord, and because of that, we would know who we are, and because of that, we would know what our rightful response to that is, to worship you, to exalt you, and just to be grateful, Lord, for all that you've given us. So we pray that you would speak through this text tonight. We pray that your word would be clear. Lord, we pray that we would come to have a more clear picture of you because of what we read tonight. So Lord, bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, Exodus 19, we're going to start in the first eight verses, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So if you've been with us so far this summer, like Travis said, we're going through the book of Exodus, and specifically, we're going through the life of Moses. And if you've been with us as well, you're fully aware that the Israelites are kind of a complicated people group, right? They're a people who were miraculously delivered, God provided for them, there were some crazy plagues when they were in Egypt, but you also know, if you were here from Cole's sermon last week, that they're kind of messed up. Right? God provides for them and provides for them and delivers them, and yet they continue to doubt him time and time again. And you also might have picked up from the text that we're at a place called Mount Sinai, which if you're familiar with the Bible, you might be aware that Mount Sinai is also referred to as Mount Horeb. So James Bento's sermon a few weeks ago, he's talking about the burning bush. That was at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the exact same location as Mount Sinai, right? Just two different names for the same place. And so the significance of the Israelites being back here is twofold. First, it's actually an act of obedience. If you remember from James's lesson and from the text that he taught from, when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, he tells him not just to go back to Egypt and to free the Israelites from their slavery, but he tells them, after you've freed them, bring them back to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, that they may worship my name. And so Moses is simply fulfilling what God asked him to do. He is bringing them back to Mount Horeb because that was the next step. And honestly, I think Moses is probably just that guy who's saying, 
God tells me to do this, I do this, and I'm just taking the next step, the next step, the next step. So them being at Mount Sinai isn't a coincidence, it's actually an act of obedience. And the second part of why it's significant that they're here is if you remember, the burning bush was when Moses first encountered God's literal presence, right? The bush is on fire, he hears an audible voice, and suddenly this angel or the Lord is speaking to him, he had to take off his sandals. That was the Lord's presence in that place. And I think in part, him bringing the Israelites back to Mount Sinai is thinking, they've been grumbling, they've been doing all these complaining things, I want them to also encounter the Lord's presence. And we see from the text, that's exactly why God brings them there, to descend on the mountain, to give them this covenant, and to let them see his glory firsthand. So there's significance both in Mount Sinai and in them being there to see the Lord's presence. Which, you might be asking yourself, if you put yourself in their shoes, what are you feeling if you're about to be told that the Lord is descending in three days, you have to purify yourself, and then suddenly you're going to be face-to-face with your maker? Right? I mean, if you're, if you're like me, part of maybe you're excited, saying there's a lot going on in my life that I'm not too happy with. Lord, come quickly. Can't wait to get to heaven. I want to skip this step. But then there's other parts that you would probably like the Israelites be a bit terrified, right? That you know fully well that you just grumbled. I mean, Cole's whole sermon last week was telling us not just how important it was that they were grumbling because it wasn't just creating bad vibes in the camp as they walked in the desert. It wasn't just a sin against God, but it was actually ruining each other. They were harming each other collectively by grumbling and letting that build and build this attitude of distrust in God and this attitude of doubting God's provision in their life, even though God had literally given them magic bread every morning to survive on. And so you're the Israelite who's both maybe excited and potentially terrified that you're about to see your Savior descend on this mountain, probably in a mighty, miraculous way. That's at least how I would be feeling. And if we look even a bit further, right, put yourself back in the Israelites' shoes, when they were in Egypt, we know from the book of Ezekiel that they had actually adopted the Egyptian gods. So think the Israelites, Sam Kite talked about it, they're building brick after brick after brick, they're enslaved, they hate their oppressors, and yet despite having hate for the very people that had enslaved them, they've actually adopted the gods of the Egyptians. It says in the book of Ezekiel that they had taken on the, the Egyptian gods and they were worshiping them as if they were their own. So again, this is a people who had been told firsthand their God is Jehovah, their God is the God of uh, Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and yet in captivity, they adopt the very God of the people that they hate the most. And if we skip a week further, not to give too many spoilers from Guy Baber's sermon next week, but he's going to talk about the golden calf. And so again, even after this miraculous moment of God giving them a covenant from our text tonight, of God providing for them with daily bread, even in that moment when Moses goes back up the mountain a second time, The Israelites freak out. They think that suddenly God's not going to provide for them, and they build this idol, right? They go back to the idols of the Egyptians, and what does Moses do? He rightly loses his mind when he comes back down the mountain. He freaks out at them, and then God threatens to punish them because of their disobedience. And we say all this to say not just that the Israelites are like us, that we can relate to them, but the greater point here is actually for us to be encouraged by God's character, his response to these repeated acts of disobedience that the Israelites take. So again, right, the grumbling, the complaining, the false idols in Egypt, the false idols that they probably brought with them through deliverance, and then next week's passage you'll see, they continue to be ungrateful and unfaithful people. But verses one through eight, what we just read, what is the characteristics of God, the character of God that we see in this moment? We see a God who continues to make covenants with broken people. We see a God who sees their sin and he sees their brokenness, and in those moments he says this is the people group 
that I still choose to make my covenant with. This is the people group that I will still give daily bread for, that I will still continue to provide out of their exodus into deliverance, into the land that he had promised for them. And that for us, right, should be encouraging. And maybe, like me, you fall into two camps here. One, you can hear that, say yes and amen, that's the God that I worship, and then you totally judge the Israelites, right? You say, how stupid can you be? I pray and pray and pray for God to give me actual signs. And you're the people who saw the sea parted before you. You're the people who saw God deliver you with crazy, crazy, miraculous miracles in Egypt, and yet you still doubt that he's not gonna provide for you, right? So there's this judgment, we can get critical of them. But then if we're honest with ourselves, or at least if I'm being honest with you guys, I can pray for a difficult situation at work completely lacking faith that God will provide in that moment. Or pray for a difficult relationship and say, I just, I don't know if it's gonna work. I'm doubting God's provision. I trust myself in this. I'm just gonna keep my, you know, white knuckle my way through it, doubting God's provision. And yet, what has God done time and time again? He's always provided in the work situation. He's always provided the job. The money has always come through when I needed it most. And so I am actually like the Israelites. And maybe you are too if you're willing to be honest with yourself. And so the question for us as we continue to study God's character tonight is what does it mean to be faithful? And if we're judging God by our standards, it means that he would be faithful as long as we're faithful, right? That he would provide as long as we provide. That if he promises to do something, we promise to do it in return, that's when provision takes place. But in God's economy, which is actually far better than ours, it is his faithfulness that is proven to be true when he makes a promise and he keeps it, despite our own disobedience. So here in the text, right, when he makes this covenant with Israel to provide for them and to bless them, that is him saying, I'm gonna do it even if you don't. And that's far different than any human relationship that we've ever had. And to further ingrain this in their mind, he gives them this picture of the eagle, right, and carrying them on eagle's wings, which, if I'm being honest, I am a city boy through and through. Yes, I grew up in Indonesia. Even then, it kind of felt like city boy. Um, weird mix of being in the jungle and living in a big city. We can talk about that later. But I read these passages, right, where there's mention of eagles or mention of farming, of crops, and I just, my eyes glaze over because I don't know livestock, I don't know birds, I don't know any of this. And maybe you're like me, right, where you read the passage and you say, okay, I'm gonna, that's cool that God did that, I'm gonna move on to the next thing that I understand. But for us here tonight, this is actually a very encouraging image. So if you're like me, city boy, stay tuned. This is why the eagle is significant. When an eagle is teaching its young how to fly, right? So picture the nest is up in a tree, up in a mountain somewhere. The eagle is majestic, it's flying around. When the chicks hatch and then they grow and the parents are doing that weird, nasty regurgitation thing to feed them, right? We've all seen it on National Geographic or growing up. The, the parent eagle doesn't just let the chick jump out of the nest when it's ready to fly, right? The parent eagle jumps out of the nest and the kids watch it, right? They learn from the parent how to fly. And then when the chick is finally strong enough to jump from the nest on its own to attempt to fly, the parent just doesn't say, okay, cool. You're like, maybe you, maybe you die, maybe you don't, maybe you jump, maybe you land. The parent fully knows that they've taught them how to do that. And when the eagle actually jumps, the baby jumps, the parent eagle, this is the whole carrying uh, Israelites on his wings. The parent eagle is already beneath where the chick is gonna fall. So it's either uh, flying directly beneath the baby eagle or directly to the side of the eagle. And there's actually YouTube videos of this if you wanna Google that later. I got very deep in this rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> you, just to confirm, right, I'm like, I don't wanna preach heresy, you know, I wanna make sure the picture's accurate. I can attest the picture's accurate. Um, the chick 
jumps out of the nest, and then the eagle is either directly beneath it or on the side. And what's the significance of that, right? As the eagle is flapping its wings, the chick is learning how to fly, sometimes it does fall, and then the parent catches it and brings it back up to the nest. Or sometimes it's leaning too far this way, the wind's carrying it this way, it's not strong enough. The parent eagle is guiding it the entire way from what it needs to do. And what's the significance here, right? God called Israel to take the step of faith out of the nest of Egypt, to walk into their deliverance. And they still had to take that step on their own. But God was with them, and he was before them, and he was behind them, and he parted the waves for them, and he brought them into the desert, always providing every single step of the way. So when God tells Israel that he brought them to himself at Mount Sinai as an eagle on its wings, that is him saying, I have gone before you, and I am not calling you to anything that I myself am not willing to bring you through. And is that not the encouragement for us tonight where we see God himself, if he delivered the Israelites, we worship that same God. And beyond that, he doesn't just give them the cool bird image, but he makes a covenant with them, right? The covenant that if they follow his commandments, he will bless them, he will make them a holy nation, and he will make them a kingdom of priests. This is God making a promise despite knowing that they've continued to grumble, continued to sin, and because he knows all things, he knows they're going to make the golden calf, he knows they're going to continue to reject him, and yet he in his goodness makes that covenant. And so ask yourself again, what image comes to your mind when you think of God. And when you think of God's faithfulness, what's the image? Is it this image of an eagle safely and carefully providing and caring for someone? Or is it more like me, right? I, on my bad days, if I'm being honest, can view God's love as transactional. And I know it's theologically wrong. I know even saying it out loud sounds crazy. But I think there's a decent amount of us in the room, especially if you've been doing this good Christian thing for a while, we think that we are entitled to certain things spiritually, that God has to give us certain things materially because we're doing good Christian things, right? So for me, this is, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm in the Bible study and I'm praying for this person and then I grumble when I feel like God's not giving me the thing that I'm praying for. And that's me viewing God's love as transactional. It's me saying, hey, you owe me because I'm doing all these good Christian things. And that's not God's faithfulness. He obliges and fulfills the covenant that he makes not the covenant that I try to bind him to wrongly, not the covenant that I think I'm entitled to out of pride because I'm doing the right Christian things. An easy picture to further drive this home. Two weeks ago, I was grabbing a drink with a buddy on a Friday, and I was being honest about this area in my life that I feel like I am just up against this wall every single time, trying and trying and trying to force something to happen, and I'm praying about it, and it's a good thing that I'm trying to, to orchestrate here, but I'm praying and I have even fasted for this issue, and I've sought good counsel, and it just, it doesn't work, even though in my mind, I'm doing all the right things. To which my buddy responds, he's like, yo, God's love for you isn't transactional. And it was in that moment that you're, you're with your friend, it's a Friday, you're at happy hour, and you're like, I don't want counseling. I want you to <laughs> affirm me being petty, and then I want to feel good going home, right? But this is also... Shout out to Travis, like join a growth group, you will completely be sanctified and redeemed and get good community. Uh, sign up, you know, afterwards or whatever link he said. Link in bio. But <laughs> my buddy, because he's a godly man, told me that to convict me and to encourage me because he knows me well enough to know that my default when things get tough is I just, I grind. And that's Josh Christopher. I put my head down and I work and I work and I work because I've seen it work at work, right? Where I, you give me a hard task, I love being the king who stays late, who gets in early because I always see the result. 
But I can't see that with God because he's not a God to be manipulated, nor is he a God who's impressed with me white-knuckling everything, trying to convince him that I'm entitled to something. And so his faithfulness is the rest that I seek. His faithfulness brings the confirmation of my identity that I seek, right? So for any other Enneagram type three, even though I know Enneagram's controversial now, ENTJ, overachieving perfectionists out there, like the, the sweet news that we can hear is that our identity, our sufficiency, our worth is found in absolutely nothing that we do, right? It is not found in me impressing God. It is not found in me having the right community to convince me that I'm a good Christian. In, just to further even drive that point home, in the moments that I truly feel like in my life I've accomplished some of the mountaintops of like, I was just striving and striving and striving, got this professionally or got this whatever, those personally, if I'm being totally honest, have been some of my lowest moments emotionally and mentally because I actually reached what seemed like the mountaintop and I had made it such an idol that I had never felt more broken in those moments. When everyone's cheering around you and everyone's saying, good job, you finally got this at work, you finally won the big case, whatever, you go home feeling broken because that's an idol that God cast down. That is not the sufficiency of Christ that I'm relying on in that moment. And it comes down to this, that we have a faithful God who made a covenant with the nation of Israel despite knowing their brokenness. And for us, he makes covenants with us despite knowing our brokenness. And so there should be relief for us and it should be for us at least, a release from this endless rat race that we can feel in Houston, right? Where we wear the rowback at church and we have Peter Millar and we have the Lululemon crossbody bags and we got our on-clouds on. I mean, we're getting personal, right? But you're nodding your heads because I'm, I'm wearing Peter Millar up here and I get it. But it's, it's the hatred that we have of, hey, I'm walking for God and yet I'm so bitter against that family whose Christmas card always looks so perfect when my kids won't even smile for the camera, right? Or that marriage always seems so perfect and their Instagram posts are perfect. And it's us trying to compare and trying to seek approval from things instead of resting in God's faithfulness, where our sufficiency, our worth comes from him, not from all this dissatisfaction that we put in earthly things. And so I think some affirmation, right? Since we're laying down the law, it's, it's helpful of what this practically looks like. It is our response to God's faithfulness is this. You are a good mother because Christ is working through you. You're a good steward of your job or a faithful husband. You're a faithful 30-year-old who's single. You are a faithful person in your community, in your family, because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's Christ in you that brings the value. And he blesses you because he's faithful, not because you've impressed him with your good works, nor because you've done so much that you're too far to be saved. He is impressed with you because of Christ's sufficiency. And any attempt by us, by myself, to try to wheel and deal God into blessing me, if, if I do X, Y, Z, he owes me this, that's honestly the prosperity gospel, where we are trying to get a God to bless us and trying to add to what he's already sufficiently given us, which is our salvation in Christ and all the blessings that he has. And the prosperity gospel is honestly straight from hell. He is not a God to be mocked or manipulated. He is a God who is faithful to the promises that he made, not the promises that we try to bind him to. And so who is the Lord, right? He is a God who is faithful. And because of that faithfulness, we can rest and we can have security. We can finally take that deep breath and say, I will cease striving because I know that my worth is found in Christ's accomplished work on the cross. So who is God? He is faithful. Now, part two. Who is God? He is holy. So back to Exodus 19, still have your Bible open. It's a mouthful, and it's about 20 chapters, so bear with, or 20 verses, wow, 20 chapters would be 
hot mess. Uh, we're going nine all the way through the end of the chapter, so through verse 25. Stick with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord also spoke to Moses and said, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the, third, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up to the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. It's kind of a crazy picture, right? I know that was a lot of verses to digest, but to summarize it in chewable pieces, there's trumpets, there's smoke, the, the literal mountain that they're standing on is shaking. And it's both a terrifying and a magnificent picture, right? This isn't the God of Jesus is my homeboy and he's meek and mild and he's sitting here with me. It's a God who descends on a mountain and the mountain shakes, right? Which maybe you've been in an earthquake, but this is an intentional earthquake of God's presence descending and the literal ground is shaking. And here, God speaks to Moses and tells him that the Israelites are required to be purified before they enter God's presence, and the commandment for them to be sanctified isn't for them to be saved. We just talked about it. That's through Christ and Christ alone. But it's because God is holy, and there is a response to his holiness, a response to being in his actual presence. And the Israelites had to first cleanse themselves externally before coming in his presence. If anything, it's symbolic, and here's a really poor example, but I think it gets the message across. So say you get this crazy invite in the mail, and you're invited to meet the queen, right? You don't then put on your jeans from Ross Dress for Less. You're not just saying, hey, I'm going to wing it. It's cool looking forward to it, get to go to London. You are putting on your literal Sunday best, hopefully a tux or whatever gown women wear, because there's reverence with it, right? You are seeing someone who, from an earthly standpoint, is a big deal. Even more so than should the Israelites' response have been to seeing the Lord's literal presence. Not for salvation, but because there's a reverence, a holiness, a different mentality that they needed to have. And God determined that it took three days for them to get in that right mindset. And holiness is probably one of those words that we, at least me, we don't throw it out that often, right? We don't hear the newscasters talking about it. Your boss, probably, unless you work at a church, isn't talking about holiness that often. So two good examples from the Bible that we can see just to glean what this looks like. 
The first was the burning bush, right? James Bento talked about it, but Moses had to remove his actual sandals before he could be in God's presence at the bush. Not because the sand was holy, not because there was anything special about the earth, but because in order to be in God's presence, just as symbolism, he had to take off what was unholy, take off what was dirty. And for him, that was the sandals. Or Isaiah 6, another passage, there's a prophet named Isaiah, he has a crazy vision, he's seeing the Lord, and as he's seeing the Lord, there's these six-winged creatures around him called seraphim, and two of their wings at all times, 24-7, are covering their eyes, because even them, as perfect angelic beings, cannot fully look on the holiness of the Lord, right? So maybe you think, okay, I get it, I'm a human, I'm sinful, I can't do that, but even an angelic being, someone who's in God's presence currently, right now, still can't with their eyes look at the Lord because he is that holy, he is that set apart. That is the distinction of God's character, right? It's a perfection that we honestly don't understand because we've only ever known broken relationships, broken families, broken work situations, broken finances, broken homes, and we can strive and strive, but we've never been able to fix them. God is the literal opposite of that. He is everything that is perfect and holy and true. And by telling them that they needed to be sanctified, there's a reverence there that he's driving home. He's saying, for three days, you need to set yourselves apart so that you have awe, so that you have wonder, so that you in your right mind can go before a Lord and appreciate his presence without being distracted, without being polluted. And there's also that weird verse that says they can't go near a woman. Daniel Ernest, the executive pastor, would absolutely love to talk to you about that. After service, he'll be out front. I can give you his cell phone number if you want to, you know, chit-chat about that. I'm not touching that tonight's text, not what I felt personally convicted about. Um, But, right, there's this commandment to be set apart, a commandment to be different, to be distinct. And if anything, it's so that they get a glimpse of what God's holiness is, right? They don't just stumble into the moment, but they've prepared themselves for that moment, knowing they're going to be in God's presence. So the relevance of all this tonight, right, how do we become aware of his holiness and how do we respond to his holiness? We don't have an actual mountain like they do that we've been called to walk up to that we know is going to start shaking. We don't have this order from God that every three days we need to purify ourselves or we need to slow down for a certain day of the week. But we do worship the God that is spoken about in this text in Exodus 19. And so if he says that he's holy and set apart for the Israelites, he is also holy and set apart for us. And if it demanded a response for the Israelites, it demands a response from us. So a coworker uh, gave me a really practical example of what this looks like. And uh, longer stories, so bear with me. When I was a younger intern at the law firm that I first worked for after I graduated law school, I was assigned this paralegal, and her name was Gwen. And she, uh, at that point, was about 55, 60 years old, and kind of the Louisiana mother woman that you want in your life, right? She's like, don't talk to that person, that partner's mean, work for this partner, don't do this, wear these kinds of shoes to this court, to this judge, because they like this. Don't say this word in front of this judge. You better not ever look this person in the eye, because they're going to, you know, just, I mean, think suits, but on steroids. That was Gwenny to me. And she became one of my best friends. Once I started to work there, we had all of our cases together. And so I'm thick and thin with this woman for about three years. And at one moment, just random day of the week, she calls me in, you know, sit down in my office, shows, close the door, and she tells me that she has ovarian cancer and that it had completely metastasized. I mean, they just, they missed it in the scans, and she was dying in that moment. So this is a woman that I interact with on a daily basis, text, call, I knew her kids, I knew her husband, she knew, you know, the random girls that I bring to Christmas parties, like, we were thick as thieves (laughs) at this point. 
And, and she, as a good Louisiana woman does, gave me very honest opinions about all of them. Um, <laughs> this woman, right, then proceeds to go through surgery and chemo and radiation again and again and again. And for about two and a half years, it's the firm supporting her, doing meal trains, we're praying for her because she's a believer, um, doing Race for the Cure events, shout out running, all these things that we are trying to be in her corner, we're trying to be supportive. And she actually gets better for about the first year and a half. And then, probably familiar to some of you who've wrestled with cancer in your life, she got worse, and not just worse, but regressively worse, to the extent that she had her final day in the office knowing she wasn't coming back. And then she had her final day in the hospital knowing that she was done with treatment and she was going to hospice. And so this is a woman who had become one of my best friends, and I'm sitting at her bedside on the very last time that I saw her. And she still asked me, she's like, does that mean partner, you know, sticking out of your way? Do I need to call him right now? And she's still in my corner, even literally on her deathbed. And the conversation turned spiritual as it often did, and she started going through some of the regrets of she wishes she would have been there for her kids more, wishes she would have worked less, done this. But her closing thought to me, and what still, in a good way, I think, haunts me today, she was talking about how she knew, whether it was a few days from then or weeks, she was about to stand before a holy savior. And she had such confidence in that, that it still it shakes me today. But beyond that, her line to me was she was talking about holiness, and she could not wait to be made holy in front of our savior, because she knew that she would be restored in his presence. And her her closing thought to me, as I'm at her bedside, we prayed, and she says, I wish I would have fought as hard against my sin as I did this cancer. Right? Excuse me. She said, I wish I would have fought as hard against my sin as I did this cancer. She passed a few days later, and that line still haunts me. And it's, it's a glorious haunting, if I can be permitted to use such a term, because she knew that her salvation was secure. She knew she was going to see the risen Savior. So it wasn't, I wish I would have strived harder. I wish I would have been more legalistic. I wish I would have done this and this to impress God and feeling guilt of it. It was a love that almost a child feels for their father to just be exactly like their father because there's such security in that. That is what she felt for the Lord. And it wasn't, you know, I wish I would have done this or anything exciting. She had holiness on the forefront of her mind as she was about to meet the Savior. And that, for me, is convicting, but it's also incredibly encouraging because she, with all else in life, forcefully removed to deal with cancer. Even in the midst of battling cancer, she still saw a greater priority in being made holy and pursuing God's word faithfully and doing as he commanded. And I think for us, right, that's the same takeaway tonight, to see our response to God's faithfulness and his holiness is to rest in the security of our salvation and then beyond that, to do the obedient work that we're called to, knowing that that is not what earns us grace or salvation or favor, but we do it out of love response to God because he's called us to it and we obey him just as a kid obeys their parent lovingly. And so our question tonight, right, as we start to wrap up, one of them I think we ask ourselves, as we stand before a holy Lord, what sins like cancer do we need to surrender to the Lord? Not to fight white-knuckled, not to keep striving in, in just being hidden from community or anything else, but what sins do we need to surrender to the Lord so that he can convict us, that he can restore us, that he can make us more like him? Beyond that, the law was given to Moses and the Israelites three months after their exodus from Egypt. 
right? An exodus that honestly probably felt more like an exile for them because they thought they were being delivered, thought they were being brought into a land that was gonna be perfect and fruitful, no complaints, and instead they're three months in a desert, which I think for any of us would be pretty grueling, right? And so they're confused, they're mad at God, and they don't understand why they're there. And for all of us, I think it's important to ask, what is our personal exodus, right? Aren't we just like the, Egypt, the Israelites, where we think maybe we were delivered from something only for the situation to actually get worse? Or you take that step of faith, and you feel like you're really following the Lord, and it's actually way more difficult than the place you were previously at. More practically, right? Maybe you're three months into having a new baby, and it's complete chaos, and you have postpartum, and there's all these moms posting on Instagram, making it seem the best thing ever, and you are at home wondering, am I doing something wrong? Is it, is it just not working for me? Or you're maybe five months struggling with infertility, and you and your spouse feel like it's just this emotional desert, and you don't understand why you're there, you don't understand how you get out, you, you're fearful of how long you're gonna stay there. Or you're five years into a marriage, and you have a kid or two, and you're going to church and trying to do all the right things, but it just feels like chaos at home, and you feel like you are white-knuckling your job day in, day out to provide for a family, but it's just, it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, it doesn't feel like what you signed up for, but you know you made the covenant, and so you're trying to stay faithful. Or you're 10 years into a job and you feel trapped, right? Whether it's because of financial burdens with a mortgage payment and private school tuition, or whether it's just you don't know what else to do at that point, and you'd feel like a failure if you chose something else or it's imposter syndrome at work, or you're an empty nester, and you're 20 years into a marriage, and suddenly the kids are out of the house, and you don't know what it looks like to start a new life with just the two of you. Even though you fell in love 20 years ago and you made the covenant, it's hard. Or you've been a widow for 15 years, and you're serving in the church faithfully, but it's, it's lonely, right? You feel isolated. All these reasons, all these situations can feel like personal exiles instead of the deliverances that we pray for, that we hope for. And so where do we find our hope? Where, where is our closing thought for tonight? We look to the character of God. We ask ourselves, who is God? And we see that he is faithful, and we see that he is holy, right? We see he is the God of Exodus 19. And if he blessed them, and if he made a covenant with them despite their stubbornness, and despite their repeated sin that he knew they'd done already, and that he knew they would continue to do, so too is his covenant that he makes in the New Testament with us here today. He blesses them because he is faithful, not because they are faithful. He blesses you because he is faithful, not because you are faithful. And he's holy, and so that should prompt a response from us, whether that is awe, whether that is reverence, whether that is simply acknowledging that I am a small, small man in front of a mighty God. And that's actually tremendous news because it means I have no control, and we just surrender and walk obediently. And so our call tonight is this to see the Lord as he truly is, not as we've made him falsely to be, not as culture or TV, whoever has told us that he is, but to read the word, to get to know our Lord and Savior, and then to latch on to his promises and to hold him to him, knowing that he will be faithful because he made the promise. And there's this old hymn that I'll close us with for benediction of sorts, even though I know we don't really do that on Thursday nights, but this hymn's been just in my mind for probably the last two weeks. Um, so if you Go ahead and bow your heads with me. I'll, I'll pray and let this, I think, be the blessing for us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would turn our wandering eyes upon Jesus, that we would look full in his wondrous face, in his holy, faithful, mighty face. We pray, Lord, that the things of this earth, our belief that it's up to us to prove our self-worth, our mental health struggles, our imposter syndrome, our loneliness, our insecurities, 
Lord, everything that's been thrown at us that's tried to convince us that you aren't faithful, we pray that all of that in Jesus' name would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Amen.